Welcome to Future Proof, the marketing podcast from Said Business School, Oxford University, and Kantar, the data insights and consulting company. In each episode, we speak to industry leaders about the big issues in marketing, sharing evidence and inspiration for the future. I'm Jane Osler, Global Head of Media. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Insights Division of Cantor. I'm Felipe Tomas, Professor of Marketing at Said Business School. Our guest today is Inga Thordar, who is executive editor at CNN Digital International. Inga, thank you very much for coming in. It's my pleasure. Thank you. You've had a very fascinating career and you have a really interesting job now. Just tell us a little bit more about what you've been up to. <laughs> well, thank you. So I, I'm, I'm originally from Iceland. So I moved over here when I was sort of in my mid-20s and I started working in journalism then. I started working for AP first, APTN, so the television arm of the um, Associated Press. And I moved on from there to the BBC, which was my first job in broadcast, which is sort of fairly unusual, I think. I think normally people sort of cut their teeth a bit at local media and, uh, and then move on to the big stage. But I went straight from AP to BBC World, the international uh, station there, and they gave me uh, three months as a sort of a trial, which turned into 15 years. <laughs> so that was... Uh, <laughs> Bit of a, a, a long um, stint there, but I, I mean, it was it was an absolute privilege to be able to cut your teeth in journalism at an organisation like the BBC. I mean, it, there are so many great things that they do, and and the the way they do things with rigour. But um, I thought, you know, after fifteen years, it was time to move on, and which is when I um, took on this job at CNN, which was sort of running the international editorial teams. And I started at the end of twenty fifteen. And then 2016 happened and it hasn't stopped since then. So it's been uh, quite a journey with, you know, I think my first story at, at CNN, sort of big story came five weeks into my work with them, which was the Bataclan t- attacks in Paris. And then Brexit followed and then Trump followed. And it's just been uh, a, an amazing ride since then. And so what does your day job consist of? I know it's very difficult to say a typical day, but what does it look like? Yeah, well, I mean, it starts around 7.30 in the morning when I sort of start looking at the news and the newsletters and what's happening. And, and, you know, I try to stay across sort of most other of our competitors as well as obviously our own coverage. But I also think it's, it's really important that we try to distinguish ourselves, which is my main priority always when it comes to the editorial meetings, which we have here in the mornings um, in London. And uh, I mean, what I love about CNN is the global reach of it. So our morning meetings aren't just people in the room. We have people in Hong Kong, in Abu Dhabi, in Atlanta, 
you know, and on the phone we have people from Russia, from Jerusalem, you know, from Beirut. So it really is truly global in its scale. And, and we all discuss, you know, and have conversations about wherever the story is, we will hopefully have some regional expertise coming into that meeting that will shape our coverage going forward. Um, and then after that, it's, it's producing it. It's thinking about uh, the production, looking at where the audience peak is, you know, thinking about the audience that's awake, thinking about the markets that are about to come awake and, and how we can assist them in certain stories. It's uh, for me on the international side, um, explaining the international story to a U.S. audience that is waking up. It's always sort of a, a, a big part of what I'm doing in the morning to think about that market. Equally, our senior editor based in the US is thinking about, well, how do I explain US story to an Asian audience waking up? And, and then it sort of rolls on from there. So, I mean, my job is mainly now around quality control of the news, making sure that we're doing the stories in the right way, that they are presented in a, a fair and accurate manner, and that we are distinctive from other outlets. I mean, for me, it's, it's hugely important that we're not just telling people what has happened. But on any given day that we're trying to make it relevant and explain the sort of why it has happened and how that works for them. I'm interested in the change in that process. So from mm -hmm. a very outsider perspective, I feel like there has been a massive explosion in the reach of news and the frequency of news. Uh, so in, in this history, uh, how does the, the dynamic affect you like over the past five, 10 years and the acceleration of news in that role of controlling your content and quality control? And where do we go from here? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question. I mean, there's definitely, I mean, I work in the digital space, uh, which is the most crowded news space there is. I mean, it's, it's more crowded than television. It's more crowded than radio. So, you know, there's definitely a lot of noise on the internet. And it's really important, I think, for credible brands um, like CNN and, uh, you know, and a whole lot of other brands to somehow manage to stay above that noise and, and, and be a sort of like a beacon in that, uh, in that world. So and I think that people aren't necessarily therefore looking at not necessarily what has happened because they would have seen that, you know, they're sort of snacking all day on social media, their friends are sending them stuff, you know, and then they might sort of dip into things in and out all day. So I think that when they really kind of are going to engage with news, they want to understand what is the relevance and is this important to me? And, you know, and I, I used to always love seeing those tweets when people said, oh, well, I'm not seeing it on CNN, therefore it must not be relevant or it must not be interesting. Yep. And I'm like, that's a great uh, position to be in, in so many ways, because it, they are trusting our judgment to say, do you know what, we don't need to cover this because either it's not accurate, it's not true, you know, it's too incremental for us to really raise the flag on this right now. So, you know, I take that responsibility incredibly seriously. And we see that a lot with stories, you know, stories that have been going on for a really, really long time like the Syrian war, which is, you know, devastating. But if you keep telling the same story over and over and over on the war, people get fatigued and they don't get interested anymore and stuff. So I sort of think it's better to to work even harder at finding the right stories, the ones that are going to cut through, the ones that the audience is going to engage with. And I see that as, as our duty as a, as a global broadcaster with that reputation to really do that and not just give people incremental things that are, all start to blend into one for them. The, this idea of cutting through this noise really resonates, and that's incredibly important, <laughs> uh, both in your world or all of ours, really, as, as a constant challenge. So in your view, like, what drives the biggest impact in cutting through to your audience and just avoiding just this massive amount of noise that you have to fight against? I think there's a few things. I mean, obviously, breaking news 
will cut through something that happens and if you're if you're on it really quickly and and you know and you're doing it in a smart way that works the other thing is being distinctive it is really important if everyone is telling the same news people don't start to kind of they they don't realize that they are you know reading something from CNN as opposed to everyone else because everyone is just doing the same kind of content so really taking it out thinking about your headline thinking about which audience you're going to reach thinking about when you're going to release the content and then the production i would say that is a hugely important factor i mean you know putting out 800 word stories without any images without any visual aids without any videos i mean people just don't engage with it at that level right now so i think producing quality so quality journalism produced in a quality way in a quality fashion is more likely to cut through than sloppy production of goods, you know. So there is a lot of kind of pressure on news teams to be creative in their in their production and in how they present their topics as well as doing really good solid quality journalism. And so I think that that's the kind of where when news content in a way sort of distinguishes itself is that there's a lot of the process of producing news is very long and very arduous and I mean we have serious amount of layers to make sure that all our content that we put out is is accurate to the point and and is telling a story and then we put an extra layer of production around it and it's content often that has very limited shelf life because nobody's looking at monday's news on a friday it's it, it is often uh, a lot of hard work for and we need the very quick wins on it I'm interested as well in uh, the idea about how news stories spread because obviously you know maybe five ten years ago social media didn't play such a large role in how stories were propagated around the world so is have you got an example of something you've been working on fairly recently that that did go viral and why did that happen we're in a fortunate position that uh, quite a few of our stories have gone viral i think a a, a good example is stories that one of our um, senior international correspondent Nema Elbagir has worked with us on um, stories from Sudan for example and what we find is that when they go viral it's always because the grassroots are interested it's because it sort of starts to bubble underneath on social media people start sharing it amongst their friends and then they go up it's not just like one tweet from one person or one celebrity i mean celebrities help if they give the cause but there is nothing that's going to make it more important than the people who are whose story resonates with and is relevant with and them starting to share it amongst their people that's normally how the the story sort of go viral for us but we also have a very strong reader base that comes directly to CNN and share directly from there and you know that that's a very valuable audience for us and that we cater to quite a lot and you know social media plays a big part but you know we we sort of value our core audience very much and how often do you do you look at all this because presumably you generate huge amounts of uh, views um, or shares of, of the content do you do you sit down like once a week and judge well that was a good week or that was a good story you know when do you look at the numbers in that God, in that I way that. I do it every hour <laughs> <laughs> I mean we have uh, all sorts of tools to measure it so you know of course we look back at the month we look back mm-hmm. at the week you know but every day we are looking at what what can we do better today if we are if we're feeling like you know we're not reaching enough audiences with our content we will think about headlines we will think about which platforms to share it on do we change the stories around you know if the audience is in i mean for example i mean we find that brexit is not a very popular topic in asia actually they don't care much about it at all so launching stories into asia hours on brexit would in effect sort of kill the traffic on it yeah. so launching it into the audience that we're trying to reach is really important as well so within 
that environment of the, the social media and communications between your consumers, trust is going to play a huge role as one person talks to another. And to your earlier point, you said that there were there was evidence of people saying that, well, it hasn't happened on CNN or I haven't seen it. So how do I know to trust you? So like we keep coming back to this nugget of. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Trust and how important that is. How are you guys managing this trusting news, trusting the environment, not, especially in the digital realm, as you have this massive amount of noise and communication that kind of wears away trust? I mean, trust is, is hugely important for a news brand. I mean, it, it is literally, if you, if you don't have that, then, you know, people aren't going to read your... And I mean, every, we deal in the truth all the time and we de- deal in realities, you know. This isn't sort of fiction that we're dealing with. So people trusting that what we're saying is something that has happened in the world, that we've analysed it in a way based on all the information we have. Trust is, you know, is our, it's our brand and it's our DNA. So... I mean, what we have done, there's no doubt that there was an erosion of trust in all sort of what they what, what has been coined as mainstream media around the sort of 2016 and into mm-hmm. 2017. And, and you know, all these terms started flowing around like fake news mm-hmm. and, and all those things which are still out there. But, you know, I think that for us at CNN, we had confidence in our content. You know, we believed in that what we were doing was good journalism. We have put in place... First of all, very rigorous process before we publish stories. And we publish hundreds of stories a day across the portfolio of CNN. And there are a minimum number of stories where we've had to make some kind of updates or something. And then we are incredibly transparent about that. We will tell people we have updated the headline of the stories or if we have to issue a correction, which is not very often at all, given the volume of content we do. You know, we will, again, be very transparent about it. We say we have corrected this. And sometimes it's because we got we didn't get it right in the first place. Sometimes it was based on information that those people have then come back and said, oh, hang on a minute, I, I didn't quite get it right. And so I think that transparency is, is hugely important. And there are other smaller ways where you can see transparency in the media bylines, you know, you knowing that there's a human being behind this story and that that person is responsible for the, for what it is. So you can you have means of checking up on them as, a, as in their careers. Datelines, the story is written in that place. And, you know, therefore, the person that has done it is more likely to know the regional sensitivities or the cultural sensitivities around it and will have taken that into account when they've done the story. All of those things go into what I would put in the sort of transparency bucket. Not every outlet does that, but we have been incredibly rigorous about it. And and my editor-in-chief, Meredith Artley, is um, it's a very 
big sort of mantra that she has that the transparency in the conversation with our audience is very, very important. Something that I wholeheartedly believe in too. I guess the other aspect of uh, trust which is important is that it makes um, brands resilient and not only resilient in terms of readership or consumers flocking to you but also in terms of commercial success because it means that brands will continue to want to advertise with you and we did a piece of research called Trust in News which showed that brands that do manage to maintain you know high standards of content sort of premium quality content are the ones that consumers um, that trust the most. I'm really interested in the idea of what happens around an election and obviously 2020 is a, is a key year in US politics um, because there's an election. Are you making preparations for that already? Oh yes, we're definitely making preparations for the the 2020 election. And I mean, you can you can argue that the election coverage has started already. I mean, it's the the election period in the U.S. just keeps getting longer and longer and longer. And I mean, it started in 2016 when you know our audience was interested in rallies and uh, Super Tuesdays and and primaries that they were never interested in before internationally. And now that's, uh, that cycle has just got longer and longer. So we're definitely making preparation for how to cover that. Um, I think we will learn some lessons from 2016 in what we do. And then we will take how the world has changed and how um, sort of audience behavior has changed around it. I think one of the sort of biggest thing um, that we have started doing and you'll start seeing more of is around fact checking making sure that we at CNN sort of look at statements that have been made and then check them against the facts that we have and that we have researched. Because I think that not allowing kind of those misinformation out into the space and not using CNN as a platform for that or allowing people to use CNN as a platform that because they've said something at a rally and, and, and I put that across the political spectrum in the U.S., is a, is a really big part of what we're doing. And we have, uh, obviously, a, a very big politics department led by the incredibly able Rachel Smolkin over there, who is, um, you know, deep, deep into election coverage right now. Presumably fact-checking relies on being timely as well, yes. um, if you need to rebut something fairly quickly. So how do you do that? W- will you provide a counter piece which states, you know, here are the real facts of the story? Or will you just refuse to report? How do you how do you actually accommodate facts? We have stories that will do that. So we will do, uh, I mean, a lot of our coverage of things that are happening in real time go through what we call the DLE or the dynamic life experience. Um, so we are basically taking, you know, if you take any of, of the debates, for example, that CNN has hosted, we will basically give the digital audience a live experience of that. And so we will tell people what they've said on certain things. And then we will have had experts who are sitting in the room watching it at the same time who will be telling us, actually, that's not true or that's that's not fairly accurate. They've misrepresented that data or those facts. And we will try to put that in in real time so that it it's not like 24 hours later where we start to look at it. We try to do it in as much in real time as is humanly possible. But obviously, even our own very able experts won't know everything. So we will then sort of look back at it again, you know, any event that has happened where those statements have been made and and fact check them again. And then normally we will do a story that is just basically sort of like fact checking the debate or fact checking the uh, the rally or, or as the world is right now, the tweets. We, we take that part really seriously because I, I think that misinformation goes and spreads into the world because people don't check it against facts. And I mean, we're not in any way the only news organizations doing that, not at all. I think we're just trying to find the CNN's way of doing it that is smart, relevant and timely. 
one of the risks that we could have as these institutions or people, whoever you might be covering, as they try to get influence into CNN or get some uh, leverage from using your legitimacy, for example, like I'm, I appeared on CNN, therefore I'm a legitimate kind of idea, is this notion of partisanship or a voice with CNN of leaning one way or another, which is similar to a certain extent to what brands have been facing in taking positions on social issues, whatever it might be. There's a pressure to take sides. What's your take on that? What's your view on the role of, I guess, an editorial voice within your content? I mean, we don't take sides with, you know, I mean, if we, if we, if we take it in its crudest form, the sort of left and the right in, in politics or something, that's not what CNN does. But we do take sides against misinformation and we do take sides against, you know, when there are uh, untruths being told and we will call that out. I mean, I think our, our um, uh, president, uh, Jeff Zucker, at one point said, you know, being pro-truth isn't necessarily being anti-Trump, you know, and those two things aren't necessarily <laughs> opposed to each other. So I think that, you know, what we try to do is accurately reflect what is going on and calling out when things are wrong or when they've been misrepresented. That, to me, isn't taking sides. That, to me, is doing journalism. And that's what is in our DNA and what we, what we do every day all the time. We, we run opinion pieces on our, our site, which are written by people who have very strong views for and against. But we label them and we say this is the opinion of X person. And I think it's really good that we're in that debate and that we allow those voices on there because plurality of voices is also part of journalism, is to, to represent these sites. And we can provide the platform for that, obviously, as long as it stays within the guidelines that CNN sets. But I think that that's a, a really good thing. Um, but does CNN as an organization take a stand with or against a certain topic or with or against a certain political party? No, and that's not what we're in, to me, what journalism is. And for me personally, not what I went into journalism for. In a 24-hour news cycle, you must be kind of worrying about things all the time. But what, what is the most difficult part of your job? Not having enough time or <laughs> not hours in the day, I think. I mean, I run teams globally, so for me, it can lead to long days, early mornings, late nights. But I mean, I would say that the, the, the most difficult part of the job is making those judgments on any given day. It's like, are you going to go with story and how confident are you with it? Because you never want to get it wrong, um, not just sort of out of professional, but it, it, you take pride in the work that you do and, and you want to make sure that it's right. And if you're the last person to make that judgment, then, you know, you want to make sure that it's right. And it's always tough and it's always tricky uh, but I mean I, I think the other thing is obviously it's part of my job is also running the team and uh, making sure that we are holding on to and attracting the best talent in the business and you know I'm extremely fortunate to have a, a, an exceptional team all over the world that does an amazing job every day and are as dedicated to the, the profession as you would could ever hope for in my position so I think that is also uh, always a challenge is to, you know, there's a lot of um, turnover, there's a lot of burnout in the industry. So keeping that going. Um, and then just on a, a personal note, I am absolutely passionate about equality and to, to raise those issues and deal with diversity in news industry, be that around, you know, gender or race or class. So that has been an absolute uphill struggle, I think, in the industry as a whole is to get that diversity kind of on a, on a footing that we could all be proud of. 
So how have you been doing that? Have you been making sure that the makeup of your team is right and right for the kind of news that you need to produce now? Or have you been trying to influence the rest of the organisation as well? Um, I'd say both of those mm. things. It, it would be hypocritical of me if I didn't start with my own team and, and looking at the makeup of that um, and how we can a- attract diverse talent. So, I mean, I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking, where are we putting our advertising out for new recruits? Who is sharing that? Is, is our process when the applications come in? You know, how are we getting rid of unconscious bias in that process, et cetera? And, um, you know, we've been working, I've been working a lot with our HR teams on that and, uh, and they've been really good. So I think that's one thing. And then obviously there is the, the sort of wider organization. If we have found a method that works, something that is actually has result, had good results, it's sharing it and not just sort of keeping it just within your team, but sort of putting it out there. Um, I think it's also, you know, having the courage to sort of call things out if you think that they're not right, you know, not just sit on it, but to say, actually, are we the right people to make these decisions? I mean, look around the room. Are there enough women here? Are there enough people of color here? Are there enough, you know, are we representing the audience in a way that we should be doing and, and be, be brave enough to call it out your, yourself? Um, I've seen a, a real shift in that at CNN and sort of that understanding that it matters who's in the room when the decisions are made in terms of the quality of the decisions. With terms of leadership within an organization like that, specifically of being inside of like the digital side in a traditional industry, does that give you a little bit of leeway to get some of these changes? Does it just give you more challenges on how to bring that in? Because it's, it's, no, it's, I know it's something that a lot of companies face as they go through their digital transformation and changes. So there's lots of changes going on at the same time. But how does that look in your world? It's my favorite question when I, <laughs> when I do this thing. I mean, there's the whole sort of legacy versus digital. I mean, there is definitely sort of a tension there in terms of that. In my world, in the broadcasting world, television is still an incredibly strong medium and it's really it attracts a lot of audiences, it attracts a lot of, you know, uh, revenue. So it's different from print where it was obvious where print was going. Actually, television still remains very strong. And yet we are seeing um, a shift in the audience behavior and where they're going. It's just not like television is going off a cliff and I don't think it ever will. I think people will always go to television for certain things and it will always be relevant in certain ways. Uh, whereas print might be a little bit more sort of in a more perilous situation. So in the broadcasting sphere, it is a very interesting sort of concept. It's like, how do we, you know, capitalize on the growing digital audience and the changing behavior of audiences without losing the spirit of television? And I think that we have a lot of conversations around that. It's like, how do we do that journalism and how do we kind of do it? But no legacy organization has managed to make that transformation in the broadcasting world. I want to say, you know, I think a lot of print media has done it really well. But in the broadcasting world, I don't think anyone has made that complete shift for the reasons I said. And also just because it is a slightly harder. They they are wired differently. You know, television journalism is different from digital journalism. And therefore, asking our reporters who are used to, you know, reporting straight into camera to suddenly sit down and write a beautiful 1200 piece is, is, it's a tall ask, and um, many of them can do it, but there are also a whole load that, that don't, and their main job is television. So it's reskilling the organization, it's, it's, it's rewiring it, and, and it, for me, it's, it's like growing digital without killing off television, because that would be, for me, absolutely the wrong thing to do. I think television is, is incredibly strong, remains strong, but I think that it's how you manage to rewire it so that they both grow together and coexist. 
you know, I feel, you know, very privileged to work in the broadcasting space in that sense that there's not one dying, one rising. It's a real kind of symbiotic relationship that we're constantly dealing with on, on any given day. But does it face challenges? Of course, absolutely, every day. You've been listening to Future Proof. For all episodes and more information, visit uk.cantar.com or oxfordfutureofmarketing.com. Please leave us a rating and a review and subscribe within your podcast app so you know when new episodes are released. Thank you.